Rediscover travel with NetJets, the worldwide leader in private aviation. NetJets offers personalized solutions to meet and exceed the unique needs of discerning travelers like you. Pairing the largest private jet fleet in the world with an unmatched commitment to safety and service makes NetJets the ultimate solution. To speak with a private aviation expert, visit NetJets.com. You know, I remember when it was announced, Alex Rotter from Christie said that it's going to be like a battle of royale because all of the three auction houses were going to fight to get this collection. Hi, I'm Julia Halperin, and this is The Art Angle, a podcast from Artnet News where the art world meets the real world, bringing each week's biggest story down to earth. This week, we aren't so much going down to earth as we are climbing up into the art market stratosphere where only the wealthiest collectors reside. All eyes are on this tip top of the market as the art world prepares for what may be the biggest auction of the decade, Sotheby's sale of the Maclow collection. This star-studded group of works was assembled over 50 years by the billionaire couple Harry and Linda Maclow. But those were happier times. Over the past five years, their divorce has grown so acrimonious that a judge ordered 64 of their most prized paintings and sculptures to be sold at auction because they couldn't agree on how else to split the assets. The collection of work by Alberto Giacometti, Andy Warhol, Cy Twombly, and many more are some of the most high-quality blue-chip artworks to hit the auction block in decades. They're expected to fetch more than $600 million at Sotheby's over the next six months, beginning with an evening sale on November 15th. To find out more about how this collection came to auction and what it reveals about the state of the art market, I spoke with Artnet News resident art detective and senior reporter Katya Kazakina. Thank you for coming on The Art Angle, Katya Kazakina. Thank you so much for having me. So let's start at the beginning. Who are Harry and Linda Macklow? Harry and Linda Macklow are a very prominent New York couple, very wealthy, who've been collecting art for many decades. More recently, they've been in the news because of their divorce. They've been collecting for about 50 years. She's a trustee of the Metropolitan Museum of Art, the Guggenheim, Guildhall in the Hamptons. He is a major real estate developer in the city who bought and sold landmark buildings, set huge records. He once owned GM Building, which he bought for a record price of $1.4 billion. So they're just a very prominent Manhattan couple. They've been very prominently battling each other in court. We'll get into the juicy bits of their divorce in a minute. But for right now, let's stay in the happier times. During this time, I think they were married for around 40 years and they built this pretty amazing art collection together. 57 years. So tell us a little bit about what they collected and what made it so impressive. You know, what's interesting as I sort of been learning about them over the last few years is that they were one of those early collectors that we've been writing about so much. The generation that really predates and set the stage for everything that we're witnessing in the art market right now. So I think it was obviously a very different art world when they began. They were so young. They got married in their 20s. He was a college dropout. She grew up in the city, going to museums, very sophisticated young person. And that's where like the love for the art comes from. And so they weren't particularly wealthy. They were just middle-class Jewish family. They didn't enter this marriage with any great assets. And they really built it, which is quite an incredible success story and which kind of makes what's happening now is pretty devastating. 
you know, I spoke with dealers who've known them over the years. Like they've been going to galleries on weekends. Like it was their life. And what was interesting is that they did buy things early, many things, not all things, but, you know, they were really early buyers of German artists, you know, like Richter and Polka and Baselit. They were the early supporters of Jeff Koons, like they spotted him early on and Gober as well. And so I think in some ways they were at the vanguard of what contemporary art scene has become. And they knew artists and they knew dealers and they knew other collectors. And it was really kind of part of their social fabric of their life. And so their marriage ended in 2016. And as any dedicated reader of page six would know by now, the divorce was not particularly friendly. So tell us a little bit about what happened there. Well, first of all, it was just very public. I'm just reading from page six myself, you know, I don't have real insight. You know, every attempt, by the way, I've made to talk to them, reach them has been unsuccessful. And I tried many different ways. So I don't have any personal insight into their relationship at all. But from what we've all read is that Harry had a mistress and he walked out on her. She filed for divorce. And what's really unique kind of about this case is how public it's been. Every twist and turn was reported in tabloids. And then, you know, after the divorce was settled and Harry remarried, he decided, I guess, to surprise his new wife by posting this 42 by 24 foot billboard on the building where Linda and he used to have an apartment together. That's like what I always think about when I think about them is like the incredible, petty, grand gestures that can happen when you own a lot of money in real estate. It's just incredible. I mean, I'm sorry. It's like, fuck you, right? Like, But it is. It was like stories high over Park Avenue. And it was just sort of a symbol, right, of the acrimony of this divorce and his sort of throwing it in her face that he'd found this new partner. It was not subtle. But they've been disagreeing on everything. Then why this case is so fascinating, because usually these types of divorces get settled out of court, you know, out of public eye. People don't want their dirty laundry being washed in public like this. And I guess the acrimony was so bitter that there was no other way other than a legal public dispute. They had to split $2 billion fortune that they built together. There was a yacht, there were Israeli bonds, there were stocks and a very large real estate portfolio. What was interesting about it is that the largest asset that they had was their art collection, which they didn't intend become such a large asset, you know, given everything else that they owned. And so how do you divide such a complex wealth? The trial papers were fascinating because it's really a very unique window into the lives of these mega rich couples and what they own, how they came to own it, the debt that they carried. And I mean, it was really like a puzzle. But of course, art is a very emotional asset class. Like every painting, every sculpture has a story of its own, plus how you come to obtain it. And so I think Linda. People credit her as the eye in the couple, and she appealed and appealed and appealed not to sell the works because they didn't have a prenup agreement either. All of their marital assets had to be split in half. Yeah, well, so 
they have this unbelievable art collection that's worth many hundreds of millions of dollars and they can't decide exactly how much it's worth. And so the court says, you have to sell it. So as far as I know, it took a while for them to figure out exactly how to sell it, especially because they couldn't agree on what it was worth. So how did that ultimately get sorted out? Right. And precisely because they couldn't agree what things were worth, the judge said it has to be sold at auction because it's the most transparent way. Yeah, it's an open competition. Exactly. And public open market. Each of them had an expert art appraiser to value the works. And on some paintings like Pollock's number 17, for example, one of them would say it was worth $35 million. Another said it was worth $15 million. You know, so there's no way to bridge this gap. <laughs> so for the market, this kind of a collection was of incredible interest. It's considered that they're top quality works that they were buying artists in depth. By today's measures, it's not such a huge collection. The collection is 165 works. Mm. We're not talking about some crazy, crazy numbers. And they lived with the collection. You know, I remember when it was announced, Alex Rotter from Christie said it's going to be like a battle royale because all of the three auction houses were going to fight to get this collection. So that was end of 2019. So the judge appointed a receiver, right? This very strange kind of title for essentially, right, like an administrator to make sure that everything was done accurately to the best interest of the both parties, somebody impartial and someone that they had to agree upon. I had never heard of this concept before, but it sounds like basically they kind of pluck some expert and say, hey, we need you to be the sort of mediator here and represent the collection and try to get the best possible price because these two people can't agree and they're just going to get caught up fighting and won't actually get anything done. Was that basically the thinking? Yes, exactly. And it wasn't even that they had to agree upon that figure, but they could not disagree. Like, okay. <laughs> Which sounds like it probably was difficult it for probably them. It was difficult. Before that, they had each an appraiser and then each of them had an advisor and then there was the receiver. And of course, all of these people are total ultimate art market insiders, players, tastemakers. Who is the receiver and how did that process work? The receiver was Michael Findlay, who is a director of Aquavilla Galleries, a very respected person in the market. He's a writer. He wrote a book about the art market. He has been on the scene forever and has a very good reputation. He wouldn't talk to me either. <laughs> so, <laughs> so since then, uh, it's just no access, no access here. But I think that partially because they're just terrified that everything is going to fall apart at the last minute. Like it's going to blow up somehow. At least that, that's my yeah. sense. So then uh, Michael Findlay, who is affiliated with Aquavella Galleries, which is, of course, one of the top galleries in New York and in the world, really, for a certain type of material, right, for kind of modern impressionist and blue chip post-war. He asked the auction houses to pitch their proposals. And that happened early in 2020. And of course, key to that process was the guarantee, because to have the amount that this warring couple of ex-spouses would accept, and they would be split and they would get it no matter what happens. 
it was always an understanding in the market that the guarantee would play a really crucial role to whoever is chosen. The guarantee is basically sort of a bargaining chip that an auction house will put forward and say, you know, no matter what happens on the day of the sale, we're willing to stick our necks out and say, we promise that you will get X amount of money if you sell with us. So you're basically getting it's kind an of insurance. A it's guarantee. An, it's an insurance exactly, policy. insurance policy. Yeah. And so then the auction house is then on the hook. Because if something doesn't sell, it's basically the auction house owns those works. Then it kind of became interesting because the advisors, Linda had Laura Paulson, who was a former executive at Christie's, and Harry hired Tobias Meyer, who was a former executive at Sotheby's. They were advising Linda and Harry and then communicating with Michael, but ultimately, it was Michael Findlay who made the decision. But then, of course, what happened after that first initial round of pitches, COVID came. And so basically early in 2020, the understanding was that this collection is going to come up for sale in May of 2020. Because also part of the court order was that not only that they sell this collection, but the court gave them three years to sell it. So there is a time limit. Mm. And so there was an understanding that the collection will be sold probably starting in May of 2020. But because of the pandemic, it had to be postponed. And then in the meantime, there were appeals and appeals and appeals from Linda. Still trying to keep the yes. collection from going. Yes, very much. So all through mm. 2020. It was interesting. Like at the end of last year, I started hearing like, yeah, this is probably going to happen next year, sometime toward the end of the year. And it seemed so improbable, right? Like at the end of last year to think that this could even happen, you know, because essentially in the beginning, court valued the collection somewhere between 600 something and 700. So it's a massive amount of money. And we really haven't ever seen such values come to the market at one time. And so Michael Finley put the plans on hold until sometime earlier this year when he decided, okay, the market is strong enough or it's a better time to sell. And so he's looking at these three proposals and you mentioned that the guarantee played a big role, but what else might have factored into the decision to go with Sotheby's? From what I understand, it's the technology. I mean, money was definitely key. And think that the auction houses, in a way, changed the appetite for risk change. Remember, there were some years mm. when Christie's would just offer these crazy guarantees and win a lot of consignments. And Sotheby's was more conservative and they didn't want to go there. They couldn't. They were public company at the time and they just couldn't do it and really put them at a competitive disadvantage. In part, that was one of the reasons why Sotheby's ended up going private. And now things have almost reversed because now it seems that Sotheby's has a new owner, Patrick Drahi, a billionaire. But Patrick Drahi, as a collector, is a very different stage than um, Francois Pinot, the owner of Christie's. Pinot has already built his collection, already opened his museums. And Drahi is a relatively newbie. So he has a lot more to prove and potentially to buy. So his appetite for risk seems to be higher at the moment. So Sotheby's offered more money. But Sotheby's also, going back to that technology point, is that when 
pandemic hit and auction houses had to just pivot online overnight. So this was in a better shape and they were better prepared. They really did it much faster when all the auction houses started doing these live stream events, which basically turned their auctions from like an audience of maybe a thousand people right in the room to like Tens and tens and tens of thousands of people around the world, right? The numbers bear that out too. They sold more work online than anyone else. Yeah, exactly. And so I think that that technological element also played a big part in that decision. And they certainly made a very big to-do about the announcement, too. I wonder if you can briefly describe how Sotheby's made this big reveal, which I think speaks to just what you're saying, that this is a real feather in the cap of Sotheby's new owner, and it's a sort of stake in the ground to say, you know, we're the dominant player here. So tell us a little bit about their grand reveal. They've made a whole program out of it, you know, they allow me a small digression here, but it's interesting how just how the world of an auction became almost a performance art. Let's say like Oliver Barker, right? Sotheby's auctioneer. He's an actor. Like he's not just an auctioneer. You know, he's an actor on stage. So the reveal for the Maclow collection very much followed that script. Like it was very tightly scripted. And it was like a little program about like, we got this treasure, best collection ever in the world, and we'll tell you about it. And they had video recorded in the couple's plaza hotel apartment, and they had speeches by each of their top executives. It was like a big surprise. They wouldn't tell anyone. They just kind of said, we have something coming up at nine o'clock or whatever time it was in the morning and, you know, be ready. And they wouldn't say anything more. I just looked up the subject line of the email because I remember it got a lot of people chattering and it says Sotheby's to present historic announcement via live stream unveiling, which is very much also just sort of encapsulates the auction house pandemic era strategy. Like you would not have seen live stream unveiling before. Like I think the sort of old school way of unveiling this would have been a splashy news story in the New York Times with a bunch of still photos and interviews and print. And, you know, this is very much, I think, an example of this new era in auction houses and how strategy has changed. The whole thing is a real encapsulation of just how much the business has transformed. And also how much the audience has transformed, right? Like their audience, it's not New York intelligentsia or New York art market or the readers of the New York Times anymore. And to that kind of point is that they don't have to give it to anyone anymore, right? Like they have live streaming services. Yeah, they're their own network now. Is the kind of bidding war that you described for the Maclow collection, is that unusual? You know, what sort of lengths will auction houses go to to secure a consignment? You know, it was unusual in the sense that it was ordered by a court. Auction houses go crazy to get these consignments. They develop incredibly sophisticated marketing plans. They maquette how they're going to install these things. They print their artworks and put them up in the boardrooms. They donate to children's or parents' favorite charities. goes way beyond whining and dining. But in this case, I don't think they could quite do that because it was very strict. Yeah, it's interesting because I do think that 
usually if you're appealing to the collector rather than this court appointed intermediary, the auction houses really do like go for the heartstrings. Like they really try for this orchestral, like we are presenting the story of you. When Christie's won the Rockefeller collection, they created this whole kind of story about the arc of the family. And they, as you mentioned, made a donation to one of David Rockefeller's children's favorite ocean preservation charities. Like they really, I think, go for the emotion. And so it's interesting that in this case, it was much more kind of brass tacks business because it was through the court rather than appealing directly to the collectors. Agree. I'm interested too in what is going to happen with this money that's generated? You know, Harry and Linda don't need it for rent or for milk money. So how is this money going to be distributed? And we, do we know anything about where we it's going? We don't really know. And that's kind of a mystery a little bit about this collection. Again, in my reporting, I was asking, like, what were they going to do with this collection? What were their plans? And I haven't gotten a sense that there is a foundation or that they were going to give it to a museum. Sotheby's says it wasn't destined for auction, but they don't really know what it was destined for. So the money is going to be split. They still have their lavish lifestyle and houses in the Hamptons and apartments in the plaza and their board seats. You know, I spoke to some lawyers that specialize in divorces, and they said that a lot of times as a result of a divorce, what could be very painful aside from emotional component is that people could lose their status. You know, if they lose this money that they've come to rely on, I mean, on so many levels, but they do have status in New York society. So, you know, they have to probably pay for that. But I don't I don't really know. I mean, you'd hope that some philanthropic move is planned, right? Like it's yeah. just it seems like the right thing to do, but who knows? There's this adage in the art market that there are three factors that motivate people to sell the three D's, death, debt, and divorce. And you have written before about how that third factor, divorce, has become very influential over the past year because couples who have had to spend 18 months locked in the same house are now realizing that maybe they shouldn't be together and they're splitting up. So there's this pandemic divorce boom. And so I'm wondering, are there other art world divorces happening that might result in major works hitting the auction block? So it's true. Divorce is a major sort of a conduit of art to auction. But what's interesting, and when I was reporting the story about divorces and art, I realized that a lot of these divorces are very quiet. It's not like they announced this is a property of divorce of Johnson and Johnson. You know, it's, it's really <laughs> just quite, you don't know where the work is coming from. We've seen some of these recently. Sue Gross, for example, she sold a Picasso portrait of uh, Marie Therese Walter. Remember a few years ago? was like a $35 million painting at Sotheby's. In September, billionaire John Paulson surprised his wife of 21 years with the divorce. We know that he's a collector of modern and sort of impressionist art. Steve Ross, the related chairman, is in the middle of a divorce, and that's contemporary post-war art collection as well. And of course, Bill and Melinda Gates, the biggest divorce of them all, right? Big one. Again, what lawyers point out is that it's really unlikely. We're not going to have the same situation as the Maclos, where their assets would be literally delineated one after another. Yeah, that Rothko, this Picasso, you know, it's so unusual. 
And so most likely people like the Gates, they've already agreed by the time they announced their divorce, what they're going to do with their assets, mm. which foundations, which trusts and all that stuff. So don't foresee necessarily we're going to know exactly. But, you know, if Kodak Lester is going to come to market, we'll know it's probably theirs, right? And that is the Leonardo da Vinci. What is it like a book? The Codex Lester is a notebook, a collection of Leonardo da Vinci's scientific writing. That is super valuable that Bill Gates bought for many millions. So shifting gears a little bit, we've talked about how Harry and Linda were these really forward-thinking, kind of cutting-edge collectors at the time, buying in the 70s and 80s work by artists like Sigmar Polka and Gerhard Richter and Coons that were really at the vanguard of contemporary art. But they're selling it at a time when tastes have also changed. And it's a new generation of collectors who are perhaps more interested in collecting work of artists from their generation, you know, artists in their 30s, 40s, and 50s, people who are interested in identifying artists who have been overlooked by history rather than artists like those in the Mackle collection who have been really celebrated by history already. Is there a sense of how this change in taste might affect the prospects of the collection? Yeah, that's a big question about it right now and really a fascinating one because the collection, on the one hand, was billed as the greatest coming, right? But it does not reflect today's taste necessarily. And on top of that, most of the works have been off the market for decades they haven't been exhibited, they haven't been sold, traded or anything like that. So it's new to the market, but because the divorce has been so public and it's been dragging on for so long, like the question is, is it already priced into the market, right? Has it been overexposed? Just the fact that we all know that it was coming. I'm sure everybody who needed to see it has seen it. And so it doesn't have that like allure of the new that might make people really fiercely compete over something. Exactly. But the other line of thinking is that, and this is, of course, why Sotheby's is promoting it as a historic collection, is that these works have been off the market for decades and that they are A-plus works, that they are masterpieces at every level. And so as such, there really isn't an opportunity to buy something like that. The work that actually has the highest estimate in the collection is a Rothko painting from 1951. And it's estimated at 70 to $90 million. And the Rothko market hasn't been so strong. Most recent examples of his work haven't flown, actually hasn't surpassed $100 million mark. So there's a big question, what's going to happen with the Rothko? But they found the guarantor. So, okay, Rothko is going to be okay. <laughs> Someone's willing to put up the money up front. I'm sure Sotheby's is trying to, and we don't know that yet, but I'm sure what they're doing right now is trying to sell off as much as they can, you know, just not to carry that huge risk. And so that's a process where before the auction, in order to get the consignment, Sotheby's will say, you know, we promise you a certain number of, let's say, $500 million. And then in the run-up to the sale, they're trying to farm out that risk and find collectors who will basically agree in advance to buy an artwork at a set price. And so if you see that a work like the Rothko has a third-party guarantor, what that means is that Sotheby's found someone to say, yes, I'll pledge $60 million on this. And if it goes for more than $60 million, if someone else wants it, then Sotheby's, you and I will split the upside. 
So it just sort of shows just how much financial wizardry is happening up in the run-up to the sale where they're really trying to put forth maximum risk in order to get what they want. And then as the clock runs out, farm out as much of that risk and get rid of it as much as they can. Right. And they know exactly the interest they're getting in these works right now. And I think that that's the calculus they have to do. So you mentioned the Rothko. Can you pick two other works from the collection that are coming up for sale that you are going to be watching really closely? Yes. There's a Giacometti sculpture, which is really extraordinary. It's called Lunez. It's this bronze head with a very, very long nose, and it's kind of a suspended in this cage-like structure. This very haunting post-World War II work that is really very, very striking and very rare. And so it's estimated 60 to $80 million, and yeah, I hope it sells for like 200 <laughs> Are you prepared to raise your paddle? You're going to... Raising my, my finger, <laughs> my index finger. And then, so there is also very unusual work, and it's a painting by Cy Twombly. It's one of his later paintings, and it's this massive canvas, 18 feet wide. And this is beautiful, very pale green with red kind of abstract flower shapes all throughout it. And my birthday is next week. And so I think that the opening of that show at Gagosian coincided with my birthday like years ago. I think it was 2007. And I remember coming to that opening and I was just totally wowed by four or five or six of these canvases. And they're so different. You know, Twombly could be very, in some ways, cerebral and difficult to enter, you know, then these are just like so sensual and so kind of saturated with color and so bold and just gorgeous, gorgeous paintings. And they've never come to auction before. And so that would be really interesting to see the price it's going to make. What's the estimate? 40 to 60 million. Wow, it's a huge estimate. If you think about it, the record for Twombly is 70 and a half million dollars. And that's for one of his blackboard paintings. So if anyone is listening and has $65 million and wants to get Katya a birthday present, <laughs> her birthday's next week. She loves the Twombly. <laughs> Just saying. Think about it. So the Mackle collection is probably the largest and most valuable collection to come to auction since the estate of David and Peggy Rockefeller, which sold for $835 million at Christie's across a series of sales in 2018. And that was really considered a sort of referendum on how high the market could go at that time. Are people looking at the Mackle collection as a sort of bellwether for the health of the art market overall? You know, what are the top line stakes here? Yeah, absolutely. I think that, you know, coming out of the pandemic, the segment that was hit particularly hard was that masterpiece level, right? People were very squamish. Nobody wanted to consign these works. People weren't in dire straits. I mean, the, the mega rich were getting mega richer, you know, so they didn't really have a need to say, except for a couple of exceptions. In a sense, the top tier of the art market has shrunk more than any other segment. So in that sense, because all these works are really part of that top tier in whatever group they are, I think that there will be a referendum on where the market is. And potentially, you know, we could be entering a different market altogether, right? What do you mean by that? What you mentioned earlier, right, that the fashion has changed. Younger collectors are looking for artists like Basquiat, right? 
that's the artists of this moment, right, of this generation. And so, you know, the collections that were very hotly anticipated during the pandemic and earlier this year, the Marion Collection, right, the Anne Marion Collection, which had very similar material. And that was supposed to be a really huge deal and a really big get for Sotheby's. But remember in May, like the results were fairly lukewarm. There were no fireworks. I mean, those are big numbers anyway, right? Like, so we should remember, we're talking about tens and tens of millions of dollars. So is it going to really fly is what we are talking about? Yeah, it seems the number of people who are willing to spend this kind of outsized sum for these works is shrinking. So, you know, in a way, it's a question of, is this going to be a kind of last gasp for this trophy masterpiece market where people are willing to spend 90 million or 100 million on works like this? Or is it representative of the fact that rich people have gotten so much richer during the pandemic that we're going to see them really flex their muscles and there's going to be more people who want this stuff as a sort of status symbol than we think? I mean, I think it's going to be a really interesting moment to see what's going on in this segment of the market because you're never going to get better examples than this. And also, how do people who really invest, whether they think that there's a good place for them to park their money right now? Like in a sense, you know, the Rothko auction record was set in 2012 and hasn't been broken. So it would be very sobering if we're still yeah. with that same record from 2012. And it's true for a number of the artists in the collection. It's a very white male collection. There are maybe a couple of female artists. You know, if Sotheby's manages to convince international collectors that this is the top of the top and it would hold value and it's a market of its own, then it will be a great success. Because it's true, we haven't seen quite that quality of material in a very long time. And so, yeah, what would make the collection a success? Is there a certain number that, market watchers are sort of looking for this collection to achieve that would make us say, okay, this proves that this material remains the creme de la creme of the market? A billion? Oh, a billion. That's a, that's what I think. A lot. <laughs> no, All right. No, no, but let's think about it, right? Like, so if it's six, 600, maybe a billion is too much, but if it's 600, low estimate, everything sells at low estimate plus bias premium like that would get us to what at least seven at least 700 right? maybe even yeah so that's like if nothing goes through the roof it could get up there it could get close to a billion it has to i think in my mind exceed the rockefeller mm, so more than 835 like that would be a statement of success macro collection is very different right they're not even selling the whole collection and it's only 65 lots anyway, right? It's those disputed 65 lots. Linda is allowed to keep the rest. Unfortunately, we're not going to know really the result for another six months because the collection has so many kind of repeated artists and so many works by same artists, different periods, that they had to divide them up just to not overburden the market. Because at any one point, the market can absorb so many masterpieces all at once. So they had to divide them up. So we have to wait until May to really get the results back. My last question is, do you think that Harry and Linda will be there in the sales room at Sotheby's I next week? I know Harry is going to be there. I don't know about Linda. 
All right. Well, you heard it here first. Keep an eye out for Harry. (laughs) We'll be there on the ground watching the Macla Collection sale as well. Thank you so much, Katya. I feel like I learned a lot about this high-flying world of masterpiece collecting and these two titans who are going to be facing off. Thank you so much. I can't wait to go to the auction. (laughs) That's it for this week's episode. If you like what you heard, you can subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever else you get your podcasts. Also, take a moment to rate and review us. It'll help other listeners discover what we're doing. And if you have some feedback or maybe a recommendation for a future episode, go ahead and email us at podcasts at artnet.com. That's P-O-D-C-A-S-T-S at artnet.com. The Art Angle is produced by Sonia Manalili, Caroline Goldstein, and Tim Schneider. Thanks for listening. See you next week.